Thank you, Kate, and good evening, everyone. Um, can we offer, can I offer uh, a word of prayer over this passage as we seek to uh, uh, open it with God's help? The psalmist uh, says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Father of all grace and truth, we pray that you would make our path clear and would enlighten our minds and our hearts to follow the path that you have set before us, especially in this matter of our communion with you, our prayer to you, our seeking of your face and your grace to further your cause in the gospel. Amen. So I'd be most grateful if you could have that passage open in front of you. If you need to return to it in one of the church Bibles, it's page 1095 and 6, Acts chapter 4. But before we get into the passage, I have a question for you. Um, I want to show you two pictures. I'd like to ask you, uh, invite you to think which of these two pictures would best describe your prayer life. I can make that out. It's a train crash. <laughs> or would the next picture best describe your prayer life? <laughs> a desert. Well, I'm being unfair, aren't I? You want a third choice, which I'm not giving to, giving to you, because uh, I know that there are Christians uh, near and far, Christians here tonight, uh, whose prayer life has neither, uh, neither gone seriously off the rails or could be described as being without fruit. But um, I suspect that I'm not the only person here tonight who struggles with prayer. A wise Christian leader once said that if he wished to humble the average Christian, then the simplest way of doing that would be to ask that person about their prayer life. If prayer is a supper party, then some of us have scarcely made it even into the kitchen. The passage before us could be viewed, and I'm thinking especially of the, um, just a little bit reluctant, uh, um, I'm thinking especially of uh, focusing this evening on the second part, where the believers uh, offer a great prayer uh, to uh, God in uh, response to what their leaders, particularly Peter and John, have been uh, going through. That prayer could be Uh, either a great stimulus and a great encouragement to us or actually quite a frustration and a discouragement because certainly looking at that prayer I guess that many of us would perhaps have to confess compared with that praying I've hardly started but I'm hoping and I'm praying that God would encourage us and strengthen us all as we seek to look at this passage today but first we need to catch up with the story so far because the prayer is coming towards the end of a little episode in these early chapters of the book of Acts. If you just turn back to chapter 3, uh, which uh, Richard opened for us last Sunday evening, if you were here, 
then Peter and John have healed a man who has been unable to walk since birth. And the man is now over the age of 40. In full sight, this happens at the gate called Beautiful, uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. So in full sight of a crowd of people, the healing takes, uh, takes place. And it's impossible to deny that something wonderful has happened. In fact, the people are, uh, who are in that place are, are hugely impressed. And so Peter turns to them and he touches on the miracle. He mentions the miracle. And they go straight on from that to talk about the God by whose power the miracle has been performed. And then straight on from God generally to Jesus Christ. So he goes in two leaps, two very quick leaps, from the miracle performed, which they have seen, to Jesus. Jesus, quite recently crucified, dead and buried, now risen, exalted, and having poured out his Holy Spirit with power. Then um, Peter and John, beginning of chapter 4, are brought before the highest court in the land, the Sanhedrin, full of really powerful, important people. But people who, even though they are the most powerful court in the land, don't seem to realize that there is a higher throne than themselves. And even though there's many of them, they have a great deal of earthly power. Peter, in chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, has great boldness in replying to them. I mean, he, by, by all accounts, he ought to have been sort of quaking in his boots when they asked him to account for, by what power? Since they hadn't authorized him to do the miracle, by what power, what higher power can they be than us? By what power have you uh, carried out this miracle? But Peter, instead of quaking in his boots, turns the table on them and preaches a sermon to them. He doesn't give them a chance to lecture him. He lectures them and explains to them it's by the power of the risen and exalted Jesus. Please note that when Peter declares time and time again, as here, that Jesus is risen, they don't even attempt to refute that fact. Very, I mean, I think it's very significant for our confidence in the face of certain skepticism, ignorant skepticism about the, the, the resurrection of Jesus. At the time, people who basically didn't believe in a resurrection, the Sadducees, the most important members of the Sanhedrin, had nothing to, they could say about that because the evidence was too apparent. If there were any evidence available that Jesus had not, they would have said it. They would have produced it. But they don't even attempt to do that. Nor can they deny the miracle because the man is standing right there in full view. So all they can do is really rather pathetically, given there's just two, Peter and John, and they've noticed that Peter and John are not highly educated uh, men. They're quite ordinary people in many ways. All they can do is forbid Peter and John to speak again in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, no, we can't do that. There is a higher throne, a higher authority. 
and we have to follow God's call and God's leading. So they put Peter and John under, uh, under a warning, sort of, you know, if you do this again, you're in contempt of court, and then we'll have you. And Peter and John go away and report everything that's happened to their fellow believers. And so we reach um, the part of the passage I'd like to focus on in particular in the time remaining. And uh, the believer's prayer from uh, chapter 4 and verse 23 to verse 31. A very powerful prayer, one perhaps more powerful than anything that we have experienced or offered or witnessed, but I think can prove a great help and guide and encouragement to us all. I'd like to pull out three uh, pointers for ourselves from this prayer of the believers. Uh, And the first is uh, be clear. The second is going to be be careful. And the third is going to be be confident. Let's look at the first of these. Be clear when you pray who you are praying to. And I get this particularly from verses 24 to 28. When we pray, are we praying to some pathetic, weak, distant apathetic God or not? (laughs) Who are we praying to? Now, this prayer here is the longest recorded prayer uh, uh, that's recorded in Acts. And this part of the prayer, the prayer that in in our mouths might simply be, dear God, the bit that addresses God, (laughs) is the longest part of it. The actual petition, the actual what they ask for, is very short. The longest part of the prayer is how they address God. I think that's very remarkable and very helpful. And it happens quite often in Scripture. That either when um, there's some teaching, it begins with what we know about the character and the power of God. Uh, Look at the first chapter of uh, 2 Corinthians, for example, and see how that starts with, um, Paul refers to the... uh, um, uh, the, the God of all compassion and, 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 and the Father of uh, Father of, of, of compassion we're, we're starts from the, from God's compassion and then says who comfort uh, and co- who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. He starts with the character of God and then moves through to us and then to others. Happens time and time again. And what does this prayer say about God? A God who is sovereign a God who reigns. The word that the apostles use first to address God is quite an unusual and a very strong, a very in-your-face word, the scholars tell us, when they refer to God as in the, uh, at first, as not as Lord, which is the usual kyrios, but as sovereign Lord. The, the underlying word is one that would u- be used for an absolute monarch who, whose rule was unassailable whose word was unquestionable. A God who is sovereign, specifically, first of all, in creation. Do you see that in verse 24? Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You see the implication for prayer? God, you made everything. That means you are master of everything. You can do anything and everything. 
And surely in our scientific age, with our knowledge of cosmology and astronomy and physics and chemistry and biology and all the rest, the wonder is even greater when we realize the complexity and the vastness of the cosmos that God uh, that is, is God's handiwork. That's the God that they address in prayer. That's the God to whom we address our prayers too. Secondly, this God is sovereign in revelation. Do you see how they quote from Scripture? They're quoting from the, uh, psalm, uh, the second psalm in verses 25 and 26. Again, a psalm that is really in your face with regard to the absolute sovereignty of God. But they go to Scripture about 200 times, just in the book of Acts, there are references or allusions to Scripture. Yes, God has done something wonderfully new in the incarnation of Jesus, his earthly life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out the Holy Spirit, but nothing that wasn't prefigured and prepared for in the Old Testament Scriptures. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our, our father David. Why do the nations raise, uh, rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And the psalm goes on to say, and God sits in heaven and mocks them. He ridicules them. Because for all of their vaunted power and authority and cruelty, they are as nothing compared to the wonderful and kind and generous power of God. He is sovereign in revelation. But also, verses 27 to 28, God is sovereign in history. Again, and uh, this is not for the first time in Acts that we read this, uh, this, kind of, um, uh, this kind of utterance. Indeed, verse 27 uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this, in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did, listen to this, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. There are no surprises, not even in the death of our glorious and sinless Saviour Jesus. Please don't ever think that this is anything approaching fatalism, that they, because uh, God had determined it would happen that way, they, they, they therefore ca- cannot be held accountable. Of course they are accountable for their actions. But even their wicked deeds are within God's sovereign will. That is the clear and un, uh, unchanging uh, uh, teaching of Scripture. We are responsible for our deeds, including our wicked deeds, as they were, but God is sovereign, even in the vicissitudes, don't know why you chose that word, of history. Be clear about who you're praying for and gain great strength and encouragement from showing God his own handwriting in Scripture and saying, that's God, that's the God you are. Goodbye. That's the God you are. Now show yourself to us and in our midst and for your gospel today to be the God that you say you are. Show God his own writing, handwriting and quote his own word to him. He loves it. So that's the first uh, thing I derived from this great prayer. Now secondly, 
If the first thing is be clear about the God you're praying to, the second is be careful what you pray for. Now, what I mean by this is you've got to be so careful that, you, that, that what you ask God for because you might pray for the wrong thing and get it and then, really, you know, you, and then you're really stuffed. Now, I don't think you have to be too worried about that. I'm tempted to say you can ask God for what you like <laughs> and what God will then give you is either what you asked for or what you should have asked for. That's a bit simplistic, I know, but that's what I'm tempted to say. But that isn't my point here, really, at all. Um, What these Christians prayed for is precisely what had got them into trouble in the first place. (laughs) That's why I say be careful. Um, Peter and John had gone out with bold and miracle-working evangelism. They had been told not to do it anymore, and now the prayer is, please give us all bold and miracle-working evangelism. And there will be more trouble to come. This all happened, I suppose, within a week or two of the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit being being poured out. And this is the first recorded time of persecution in Acts. And from then on, never stops. And hasn't stopped till this day, till today. If we pray to God to further his gospel, we can expect trouble. We're sitting fairly comfortable in this country, but only today I was reminded of a really quite a parallel situation in some news that I received. In India, an increasing number of states are implementing a law which has these uh, implications. This new law requires clergy who lead a person to Christ to give one month's notice before doing so, and that will spark a police investigation into the proposed conversion. Also, individuals wanting to change their religion must, must first get permission from the state government. See the parallel? See how our brothers and sisters in India and many other places around the globe and increasingly, it seems, in our own country, we need to pray those kind of prayers in the face of this kind of uh, uh, persecution. I think I've got a little bit ahead of myself uh, here, but they prayed for boldness and they prayed for miracles. Now, with regard to miracles, Richard touched on this uh, last Sunday evening. I'd just like to touch on it briefly again, because the question, I hope and expect in your mind as well as in mine, is can we, uh, can we pray such a prayer, such prayers today, pray for miracles? And as Richard said, um, the answer is neither a simple yes or a no. And my take on this, just very briefly, would be as follows. That there is something special in terms of frequency and intensity about the miracles associated with the apostles' ministry in, the, in Acts, especially the early chapters of Acts. And Paul, in, I think, 2 Corinthians, refers to the signs of an apostle, although there's a special character to those miracles, again, in terms of frequency and intensity, that were associated with the apostles and their witness to Jesus crucified resurrected and ascended. 
And these perhaps are best referred to as the signs and wonders that we read of in Acts. In history, then, we do find, I I, I find in Scripture, uh, teaching about, not so much about signs and wonders in history, but certainly about gifts of healings and of the working of miracles. And I see no evidence in Scripture that these gifts have ever been withdrawn from the, uh, from the witness of history, I see them sometimes, uh, God sometimes enabling those gifts to be used more often, especially in times of spiritual awakening, or when the gospel is moving out into, in, into fresh ways, into pioneer uh, territory. I see some circumstances in, in history um, uh, when we see uh, more uh, use of these gifts or more uh, miracles from the, from the hand of God. But I think there are, so, uh, there are too many um, uh, uh, there are too many instances of exaggeration, of uh, of, uh, of, of wishful thinking, of, uh, of of fraud, and so on, for me to invite you to be you know to, to be merely uh, uh, accept every uh, every mir- every claimed miracle as being equivalent to those that we read of in Acts. So something special about the apostolic miracles. Uh, I mean, how many miracles were not complete, instantaneous, and, uh, and, yeah, and was, given in, uh, was not given in response to prayer in the Gospels and in Acts? And how many times have you prayed for a miracle and God, in his wisdom, has not granted it? And yet, uh, from Scripture and from history, I believe firmly that miracles can and do take place, and so it's right for us to, to ask God for them, but with a, a, a different set of expectation uh, than we would have um, uh, if we were living in, in the times of the apostles. That's briefly my take on Much more could be said about it than that, but I just felt um, I needed to nail my colours to the fence <laughs> and uh, say something about that uh, rather than say nothing about it. Be confident is the third one. Be confident that your prayer will be heard. Their prayer was heard. You see that summary in verse 31? They got their miracle. The place where they were meeting was shaken. And there's more to come. Uh, Margaret, I think Margaret Gray will be speaking from a section in chapter 5 where that prayer for healing uh, was answered. There are many healings that took place uh, by God through the ministry of the apostles. Now, I don't know when you come along, as I hope you join us uh, on Wednesday evening to prayer focus, I don't know if halfway through our prayer meeting we will need to send out for a structural, structural surveyor uh, because the place has been shaken. Maybe. Come along and find out. <laughs> but what we can know is that the God who shook the foundations of the house then is the same God who hears and answers prayer today. Let's believe that and pray believing to to God that he does hear and answer prayer uh, today. They got their miracle. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't even ask for that. Uh, One of the key things to notice here is that uh, they keep getting filled with the Holy Spirit. For each new emergency, it isn't a one-off thing. 
uh, preachers love to quote uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 and, and talk about the tense that's in, where Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Preachers will tell you endlessly, that's in the present continuous tense. It means be being filled with the Holy Spirit or be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Or as um, um, uh, one uh, uh, Christian leader once put it, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but I leak. <laughs> I need to pray for more filling of the Holy more equipping by the Holy Spirit for the present task before us, for the present emergency, for the present crisis, for the present uh, need. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they got their boldness. God gave them the boldness to proclaim the gospel despite continuing persecution. So there's uh, three Bs. Be clear about who you pray to. Be careful what you pray for because God might actually give it to you and put you in danger, put you under persecution. And be confident that God will hear and answer your prayer, especially when those prayers are around the success of his gospel. This is gospel boldness. These are gospel miracles. They're pointing away from themselves to the good news of Jesus and his salvation. So let's have a few takeaways from all of this. Let's realize this vast potential of prayer. Let's realize that with such a God and such a generous God and such a great God, that we are too often like millionaires who walk around as if we were paupers, just not availing ourselves of the vast resources that God has made at his, given at his people's disposal to use for the work of the gospel. Let us, let's be prepared to start small. If you can't pray as you would wish, pray as you can. If you don't have the confidence to shout the gospel from the rooftops, Share it in quieter ways with your classmates, with your family, with your friends, with your neighbours, with your relatives. If you can't pray for the conversion of the world, pray, as we, we have been encouraged to do this year, pray for five souls. If you can't pray as you want to, pray as you can and begin small. But above all, do let us pray. Let us pray individually, more and more believingly, and together, beginning on Wednesday evening, as we pray for uh, around Pentecost and, and the power of the Holy Spirit and for the work of the gospel, especially in our neighbourhood and this parish. Two very simple prayers I'd like to leave with you, that ha- each of which ha- uh, is absolute dynamite. There's two kinds of people here gathered uh, in, at Holy Trinity tonight. There are those who are followers of Jesus and those who are not yet followers of Jesus. For those who are not yet followers of Jesus, then here's a prayer that you can offer to God now, a little later, when you get home, and it's simply this. Lord, change me by your gospel. Lord, change me by your gospel. And see if God doesn't honour that simple prayer. And a simple prayer for those who are followers of Jesus Christ would be similar, but like, go like this. Lord, use me for your gospel. Whether in small or great ways, Lord, please 
use me in some way. Today, tomorrow, in the coming week, give me an opportunity, show me an opportunity, and give me the the boldness, and give me the will and the power to use that opportunity for your gospel. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are perhaps aware of how far short we fall, both in our understanding of your ways and in the power and effectiveness of our own praying. But your word encourages us to look to you as a sovereign God, to ask boldly, to seek wonderful things from your hand, both wonderful acts of providence, yes, and miracles too. And we do pray that you would give us the confidence to look for answers to our prayers, especially those simple ones that we can offer just very easily, but very profoundly. Lord, change me. Lord, use me. In Jesus' name, amen.